Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast. Hi folks, this is Christian Haynes from Gamers with Glasses, and I am super thrilled to have our 10th episode of the Gamers with Glasses show starting, and I'm joined tonight by Don Everhart. Hello. Nate Schmidt. Hi, everybody. And our special guest, first time on the show, but not first time with Gamers with Glasses, Alenda Chang. Hello. Alenda is the author of Playing in Nature, ecology in video games you should definitely check out the interview we did with her uh i want to say about a month and a half ago now but it's probably more like three or four months ago uh but it is in the podcast feed time is meaningless during the pandemic uh <laughs> that is our environment uh or it's a timeless which, interview or it's a timeless <laughs> it speaks to all times while there's still an environment which we probably <laughs> will have for another hundred years maybe Oh, there will be an environment. You Question just might not mark. like it. <laughs> just no podcasts. Uh, and our, if you can't tell already, our special topic tonight is ecology and video games or environmentalism in video games because we have been doing a mini-series of essays that Nathan, uh, Nate, has been editing called Green Screens. We've had some great content up, including uh, Alenda and her brother Ed, uh, doing 10 games for Earth Day, which was amazing. Lots of great indie games there. Uh, we had Nate right on Animal Crossing, which will be coming up tomorrow. Uh, and we've had lots of other great content uh, that is in that stream. So please check it out. Uh, but why don't we start off like we always do, which is with the games we're playing. So, Don, you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, well, to start, on theme... Uh, I've been playing Monster Hunter, um, latest uh, version of it with Monster Hunter Rise. And although I've played a lot of Monster Hunter adjacent or inspired games before, every time I've ever tried to play the main franchise, it has never really successfully clicked with me. Until now! Uh, this time, there's a group of uh, great folks who I, I've been playing with, um, and uh, it, it makes all the difference. It's just so much more fun and accessible, uh, even with me on the West Coast and them on the East Coast. Maybe it's something to do with those pandemic conditions that make everyone feel like, well, you know, you, you're not local, but it's fine. What's local anyway? Um, and as a result, I've been running through these different settings, these 
sunken forests and deserts and Mount Doom style lava mountain cave systems um, and uh, chasing down large chimeric beings um, and, and there's a range of smaller beings as well uh, some chimeric and some more insectoid or you know small mammals and things like that and uh, I, I'm I'm still I'm still out. I, I promised uh, Nate more or less that I would write about this uh, in Monster Hunter's relationship to ecology. But although they like to use the word ecology, uh, I am less convinced about its presence in anything other than appearance and. Uh, Everything else just seems, I don't know, the gameplay systems are so visible that it submerges uh, illusions that would have to do with, you know, interactions between different levels of, of life and, and things like that. Um, they're all ostensibly there. Certainly the interaction between hunters and large monsters is there, but everything else is subsumed into that relationship and it sort of... That that part of the game never quite strikes me as giving me what was advertised. Uh, luckily, the actual hunting and palling around with folks, that's a blast. Um, <laughs> Thank God for killing things. <laughs> right, you know, it, it's, it's really great to be like, okay, I've got these dual swords that are shaped like pistols, but are poisonous for some reason. I actually still haven't put together how that's supposed to go, but that's fun. And this other guy I'm with has a taiko drum that's also a horn that he uses to club things, but also play music that buffs us. Uh, bards. And just, bards. Yes. 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 So Party needs a most neglected Sorry, class. Former, former wow bard. Yeah. 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 It's not a party it. until the bard shows up. <laughs> that's right. And, and, you know, so like that part of the game, really good. Having tons of fun with it. The part where it's like, the advertised Monster Hunter world is having these different biomes and ecological interactions between such and such, and you'd see the monsters, you know, fight each other, fight smaller monsters. Like, yes, but also, I, you know, that's a that's a pretty shallow idea of ecology, huh? It's the charismatic <laughs> megafauna problem. It's like, mm. you know, we only want to watch large, beautiful mammals or things. I mean, it would be a different game if you just had to collect a thousand small mammals. <laughs> it would. Uh, it, it might be more like Pokemon Snap, which I haven't yet picked up. <laughs> the previous version was kind of like. Sometimes these things could be interesting, though, simply by virtue of their absence, especially when the creators explicitly invoke the language of ecology. They say, here it comes. I'm going to hit you with some ecology right up here. And then it's not right. Or like, I guess, Don, like you probably said better, it's shallow. And then I think there's an interesting question, not to, you know, try to tell you how to write your piece but like i think it's interesting that that <laughs> the but just write it or just write it <laughs> this is me writing it it's interesting that it's empty right it's interesting yeah. that they they like what's the draw why say this why bring it up if you're not going to do it or if you're not going to do it well 
And I think that's a good question. Fair enough. And and definitely not one that I think Capcom answers in the actual game. Um, although, having looked into it, there is a wealth of supplementary material that continually invokes this language. There is something like 10 volumes of the ecology of Monster Hunter World. Wow. Um, wow which I do not have uh, the, the faculty in Japanese to be able to, to read and see how, how well that text does. But on the other hand, all of those volumes seem to be centered around, uh, Alenda, you're, you're exactly right, that charismatic megafauna. So volume one is like Rathalos, and it's like, cool, but is that just going to tell me it's a big dragon that likes to live in a lava mountain? Because, I mean, I, I got that. <laughs> I picked that up. Yeah. yeah it's not the yeah. same. So I wonder, too, though, like, so, like, it seems like the only Monster Hunter I've played is Monster Hunter World. And it seems like if there is a case for arguing that there's an ecology, it would have to do with rule sets for how the different species interact with each other. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's the case with Rise, but I remember the thing that did interest me most in, like, admittedly relatively short 20 hours of playing Monster Hunter World, short for the game at least, uh, because I didn't even finish a playthrough in 20 hours, uh, was the way in which different monsters would attack other monsters, and you might be in the middle of a battle with them, and all of a sudden another monster would not come to your aid, but recognize that monster as a threat. And there was something about that that made it feel like a more lived-in world, and a lived-in mm -hmm. world that wasn't reduced to the environment being entirely constructed in response to human stimuli, right? It wasn't just like, yeah. this is an environment solely for me. I could imagine them attacking each other outside of me being there. Did you see um, Godzilla versus Kong? <laughs> Did that make you feel like it was more of a lived-in environment? I mean, when I went to the hollow, when I went to the hollow earth, I felt like I had been there before, you know, it was just like, I'm home, just like King Kong. I found my big gigantic axe. I was good. Spoilers, I guess. The axe. Oh God! There's nothing like a skyscraper-sized axe. <laughs> I, I prefer when kaiju pick up uh, objects in the environment, like tankers or yeah. cargo containers, and use them instead. But you know, if there's an actual—I haven't seen Kong vs. Godzilla. Maybe, maybe this happens. Maybe there's improvised weaponry in the kaiju fight. I don't think so. I don't think so. <sighs> it's it's, yeah, they 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 leaned really heavily into the Godzilla like laser beam aspect like the eye like the the eyeball like and, and the movie's more than five minutes long oh oh it's plenty long i'm it's sorry this long. isn't supposed to be a movie but, but podcast but just i was thinking about monster hunters and and uh, monsters but yeah it is um it's too long <laughs> 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 I yeah yeah no I uh I I am in this sort of sad existence I suppose where I get very excited about each new HBO Max movie that's like coming out because it's also in the theater and so it makes me feel like it's special uh which makes me watch like the Tom and Jerry movie which might be the worst <laughs> thing I've seen in about 10 years just because it exists I watched the Mortal Kombat movie at like five in the morning because I happened to be up um, because of 
child care related things. And so I was like, oh, okay, it's here. This is an occasion. <laughs> Mortal Kombat movie? It's so so. <laughs> I don't know what I expected. <laughs> yeah. Alenda, what are you playing these days? Oh my gosh. Well, because of that listicle that we wrote, I think um, I've been playing a couple of the games on there a little too much, I think. So one is um, Among Trees. It's in pre-alpha. I think I said in the in the piece that it was in alpha, but it's actually in pre-alpha, <laughs> which um, I, it was kind of scary, but it actually has been relatively um, bug-free. I did get stuck in the crafting table mm. once, but they have like an unstick yourself feature. Nice. Mm. It's always hard when you get stuck in the crafting table. The irony at the moment is that Alenda Good, is currently stuck. Yeah. <laughs> as soon oh, as no. you said stuck in the crafting table, <laughs> you got stuck on the Zoom screen. Oh, no. <laughs> you, you I'm just... sorry. No. And then no. Christian and Nate tried to play it off. Yeah. <laughs> Me and Christian both started talking. Yeah. We vamped unsuccessfully. <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's i i think it, that one's been fun i kind of have lost interest now that there aren't like goals i don't think they've filled out all the content but i built a beautiful cabin in the woods and it's basically it's like the long dark but like a nicer gentler version of it and mm -hmm. you're just in a forest there's like signs of human camps of some kind like these large wooden towers that look kind of like fire towers or something um and you forage materials and you build but it's it's I'm granted I'm playing it on Zen mode and easy because I just didn't feel like stressing about aggressive bears. But um, <laughs> you can build a cabin like by night, day one. <laughs> so it was no nowhere near as stressful as playing the long dark was for me, where I was like, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. <laughs> and uh, and then I've been playing Cozy Grove, so that's just been like very relaxing because it's. It kind of reminds me of um, Don't Starve in terms of the art style, um, but it's also like kinder and gentler. Like you're basically, you play this like, like child spirit scout, kind of like a girl scout, and you, except that you um, deal with the, um, with the spirits of the deceased. So <laughs> it's just like your junior mission. You're supposed to go to like a, you know, just partially haunted island and they send you to a really haunted island and it's haunted by... Um, the ghosts of um, of bears, bear spirits. This is the same company that did Alpha Bear, so it's the same bears. They're like they look like pieces of toast. I don't know if you've seen these. Toast they're very they're not. adorable. <laughs> but you basically have to help the 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 population kind of figure out why they're still stuck on the island, and it's very wholesome and well written. But it does. I mean, they one engages with the environment very much in terms of like the graphics. And then the Cozy Grove one is kind of um, taking the idea of coziness to the outdoors. And also, um, I like it because the plants, like the plants and animals have preferences. So, you know, like, depend, you know, it's kind of shallow because it's like, what decor do you put near them? Uh, you know, like bushes, like flowering bushes don't like to be near each other. And <laughs> of course, not. So, some trees prefer cozy decor versus spooky decor, you know, that kind of stuff. But if you make them happy, you can harvest more. But I like this idea that they have preferences. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's been relaxing. 
could check in every day and do a little bit. <laughs> it's kind of funny how often explicitly environmentally focused games are either in uber survivalist mode, your job is to figure out how to survive and conquer the wilderness, or they're billed as relaxing. That you're that you're you're either surviving or you're wandering. And I'm not going to say that those are the only available options, but a lot of the time when a game is straightforwardly saying or making some kind of claim to ecological relevance, that's often what they do. At least what, what I've kind of seen. What was that game? Does anybody remember that game where you you're a little like feather or something and you float and that's the whole game is you're like a petal or something and you is float that flow around. flow or flower? Yeah, flower. Yes. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I wrote about that a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. I'm not saying it's bad that it exists. I'm just saying it's interesting <laughs> that like most of my environmental experiences have something to do with like uh, maybe transportation, like on a bike. So I'm a little sweaty and uncomfortable. Maybe boredom. I'm waiting for a bus. Um, maybe, uh, you know, a gentle satisfaction if like a bird lands close to the window or something but but it often in games that are explicitly like we're an environmental game it's you know it's it's kind of binary in the way that it thinks about these kinds of things yeah i don't think that's it's not we can't even blame games it's probably all nature representation because it's the mm. nature red and tooth and claw yeah or nature as edenic garden right like right. so we we kind of inherited that yeah. yeah, you so, either get your pastoral or you get your survival. Mm -hmm. And yep. then the two shall meet, yeah. No, but I think that, like, what you're talking about is more interesting in some ways is the uh, nature in your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. um, that was kind of interesting because usually when you see the term cozy, it's about interior environments or domestic yeah. environments. And so I was like, how can this be cozy? I'm curious. There's a There's, like, a light mechanic where... Um, when you help the bear spirits, the world becomes uh, colored. Like it, it was, starts out as drab, and then, and then you can increase the radius of the colored environment by chaining lamps, basically lanterns and things. So it is like literally trying to make it cozy. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. I like that. That sounds nice. Try that, out. that that is pretty cool. Like speaking of coziness and you know more domestic settings right the idea of like no just a small lamp like you just no harsh overhead lights please like table side just little pools of light spreading that does carry a nice cozy feeling seems nice but then it also seems like that might show up in the next like crate and barrel catalog <laughs> you know time just time to drop five thousand dollars on outdoor furniture or something the Fern series of indoor <laughs> <laughs> tableware or something. I, I'm in yeah. the middle of Los Angeles. That would be the most purely aspirational catalog ever. Oh, outdoor lamps for my my <laughs> non-existent outdoor darkness. Wait. <laughs> to, bring, to bring the raccoons closer. Aw, yes. <laughs> Speaking of that, raccoons, that's, that's who I want. More, I want closer contact with um, <laughs> local urban raccoons. They are not at all occasionally worrying. Um, <laughs> they're not just they're doing friendly, their own they're thing. Not friendly bears. 
I'm doing my thing. They're doing their thing. <laughs> my dog is very curious about what their thing is, but my dog <laughs> doesn't get to know what their thing is. She just, she's never going to get to know. That's a mystery for her forever. <laughs> she should not find out what the raccoon's thing is. That's all. Oh my God. Speaking of which, uh, how's Tom Nook treating you, Nate? Oh man, I'm a little oh. bit disappointed. How many mortgages do you have on your house? <laughs> that was such a nice segue, Christian. <laughs> that was Beautiful. good. That was really yeah. good. Speaking of urban raccoons, that would probably <laughs> tear your neck apart. I know an urban raccoon you'd <laughs> like to get also, to know. It's who's all about upgrading furniture. <laughs> get- Moment of pedantry. That's not a raccoon. Tom Nook is a tanuki. <laughs> Hey. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> fine, fine, Dom. That's the oh whole God. point of the name, Tom Nook. I, fine, <laughs> All right, fine. you ruined it, thanks, Don. <laughs> You're welcome. This is a, this, this podcast has gamers in the name. So I'm pretty sure is. there was some kid on the playground that did the same thing with Super Mario Brothers 3. <laughs> and I was that kid for Super Mario Brothers 3. I'm secretly really, really glad that Don said that before. Before I had the opportunity to pronounce it Tanuki on the podcast. <laughs> I threw myself on that one for you, Nate. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's been good. I have probably not been totally sunk into Animal Crossing New Horizons Mania like I know some people were uh, when it first came out and have kind of turned to over the course of pandemic life. Um uh, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've played it a few hours and I'll pick it up like every couple days and kind of check in and see what's going on. But I haven't been like playing it all the time as my sort of fundamental way of relaxing. But I can easily imagine a, a world where I did. I mean, it, it is a really fun, it's a fun and pleasant game that is a really cool take on the game i remember from what was it 2001 uh when the when first, the first GameCube one? yeah the first animal crossing yeah which was on both n64 and gamecube i i think it was 2001 um and yeah i loved it then and i like it now it's fun that you can put furniture outside it's also very southern indiana of me <laughs> that we can put furniture outside <laughs> um uh my my son doesn't want to ever sell or get rid of anything. And so he has a bunch of furniture outside and all over our island, there are those little habitats, those little terraria or aquaria for various things that he's already caught and he's donated one to the museum, but he doesn't want to get rid of the, the new one because it's also his pet. And so there's just like our entire island is full of just like bugs and fish that he has trapped and then set up as items in various places. Animal hoarders. (laughs) He is. He's a little animal hoarder. And and it's kind of. Let's hope that never translates into any real life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's just. But it is. It is a funny. it's funny because I do kind of like real life really want to clean it up. I really want to clean it up and, and, and I have to curb this urge in myself, um, which is good. And I've really enjoyed that aspect of, of playing it. 
That's kind of sweet, though. I kind of love that your son is playing like that because he sees them each as an individual. Yes. And we're just like, okay, one's in the museum. We're done. The rest of you convert to bells. <laughs> Straight to bells. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like, or maybe a gift, you know, yeah. for feeling. Well, you might as well reduce them to glue, you know? <laughs> Yeah, straight to the gelatin mold. (laughs) The only way that's more bleak is uh, with Pokemon Go, where it was like, yeah, I'll just send off all of these Pokemon that I've collected in my real-world setting around the neighborhood, and then I get back candy that is suspiciously themed only to be consumed by members of the same Pokemon species... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's basically industrial agriculture right? Soylent Green is Pokemon <laughs> Isn't that also basically the game Bug Snacks from what I understand Yeah I haven't played it yet but from what I've seen It seems like that's kind of on point I, I have heard that Bug Snacks Is uh, quite dark For considering the presentation Of its subject material So I wouldn't be surprised if it was also Industrial agriculture the game <laughs> The best game around. And I've read up, like, they totally eat Pokemon. I mean, it's canon in the Pokemon universe. They eat Pokemon. They totally do. Why does that one bird-looking dude carry a leak? It's because he's delicious in soup. That's why he carries a leak. Look it up. I mean, that's just practical, right? (laughs) Look, sometimes you use them to battle and sometimes you eat them. This is this is how pets work. <laughs> That's what pets are. <laughs> yeah. You guys don't go through a couple cats a year, what? <laughs> I, That's I, ecology. Does... Food chains. We did it. <laughs> it puts a different spin on the the Nuzlocke uh, Pokemon rules, right? Where you have to, you can only play with the ones that you pick up uh, immediately. And you can't swap them out, and you can't catch any new ones in, until, through no fault of your own, you have one faint or, or otherwise transfer. And you have to play with that starter set um, until that happens to the best of your ability. And I guess that's, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, the, the Nuzlocke rules, I guess, are just in resistance to treating these Pokemon as commodities. You're no longer shuffling them off into the Poke Center or grinding them up uh, to feed to your better Pokemon. No, you you, you keep them. I, I have a whole new perspective and respect for Nuzlocke players. What they do is difficult enough, but now I see it as an act of resistance in the Pokemon universe. But it... <laughs> It is funny. I I just I just remembered something I want to make sure I said about Animal Crossing. It is funny how Animal Crossing New Horizons and I mean the other Animal Crossings too uh, have this very kind of nineteenth century attitude about collection and curation that is very reflective of a time when the discipline that would have been called natural history was kind of all about compiling these big books of just lists, list after list after list of every conceivable uh, creature that you could come up with. Uh, uh, probably a really famous version of this is like uh, John James Audubon, like the the Birds of America um, calendar, the Audubon Society, you know, that kind of thing. And this 
need to catalog to keep track of every possible creature that you can encounter. And that's very much an environment adjacent impulse that is alive and well in the Animal Crossing series. And I think it's interesting that it's so satisfying. Like it's still <laughs> super duper satisfying when you when you catch that really rare fish. It's not just that it's worth a lot of money. It's that you caught the rare fish and that's a like it feels like a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I feel vaguely guilty when I go into the museum, but it's still one of my favorite places in yeah. the game. But it's well, but it's like an amazing museum. It's like it's the if you actually museum. had you know, five grants from Amazing Foundations right. Museum. <laughs> right, right. It's not well, like really... concrete, concrete and like barbed wire. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, really like the museum because the museum gives you a motivation beyond uh, finances. The museum gives you something to do that's not just sort of grind your finds into money although the way my son is playing is also pretty great too <laughs> it's just like the museum doesn't matter every last one of these is an individual <laughs> they <all> being they, <laughs> all they all matter and we're going to keep all of them forever and we'll see what happens when we just can't walk around the island to, and catch anymore <laughs> you can make the point that it may be damaging the environment for the for the others that are Right. You know, so he might say, acknowledge, maybe we should clear. Them. Although we did. I like that they do this. I, I thought it was, it was annoying at first, and then it was fun. You can't really access the whole island right away. Mm-hmm. And so we did, once we got the bridge and the ladder and some of the other stuff that you move around, now we have a lot more space to mm-hmm. store our captures <laughs> so we can it is what every hoarder needs an adjacent apartment the bridge is just a storage unit and that's a, and that is a permanent solution to your problem i promise it's not a temporary one there's not finite space it's there's infinite animal crossing no way you- hold on Hold on. <laughs> you can release them, though. You can actually hold them and release them. You can. Yeah. And I wonder if that would be interesting to him or if he would feel like that was a departure and a goodbye. Um, mm. Maybe we just need a real pet. Right. I think that might be it. <laughs> I think we might just <laughs> need a real a pet. <laughs> you know how you can use Nook Bucks, I think it is, to you know basically go to another island and strip Nook mine? Nook Miles. It? Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. You can use the miles to like strip mine basically another yeah, you know yeah. uh maybe you can just bring them there you know it's like one of those like we <laughs> sent it to the farm sort of situation to the I, farm I, you can't ever get back to those <laughs> islands christian they're randomly generated and you never return that's why it's sending them to the farm yeah <laughs> i, I yes, like our that. dog went to live on the farm uh, oh wow <laughs> i i don't know what to say about uh sorry dog. your virtual <laughs> dog farm um but (laughs) in the virtual version of it i do like the idea of instead of strip mining islands you being like frolic Mm -hmm. invasive oh yeah i was thinking that like you're destroying (laughs) the native habitat of the island you just by releasing like 50 tarantulas (laughs) (laughs) okay buddy this is tarantula island now i don't care what's on it already 
<laughs> a lot of rare beetles. When I went to University of Florida for undergraduate, they had an incident where a set of spiders got out of the biology labs and like rapidly bred. And these were very large spiders that spun very large webs. And their response was to release another non-native species, in this case, a non-native species of they lizard. They Which then... Which then killed another set of lizards and called a whole like mosquito boom. <laughs> it was a. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel did, like Florida competes with Hawaii as like invasive species central in the U.S. Oh, did the cane toads there? reference not land? Have Have y'all not seen <laughs> the wonderful Australian documentary of that same no. name? Yeah, yeah, they, they have, have a problem, problem with, with, with great. They're, they're big, big toads, aren't they? They're, they're like great, oh, enormous. Yeah, yeah great, great big rascals. They're, they're in the way, way of everybody. everybody. Yeah, and 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 I mean, the documentary footage in that movie. The interview. It's. it's decades old so it's a glimpse into australia's past um as they try and and figure out what the heck an invasive species is <laughs> and and the cane toads teach them an object lesson in oh we're huge uh we take up whatever space we like and there's nothing on this entire continent that wants anything to do with us so good luck getting rid of us because there, there is nothing. Everything else in Australia that saw cane toad was evidently like, no, <laughs> nope. Yeah, giant. This is giant, when you infect them with a T virus. I have no segue to talk about Housemark games, but I think Don and I are both playing Housemark games at the moment as I, we get I, ready I to do. play Returnal. You've been playing, as have I. Uh, a strip mining housemark game in Super Stardust HD. Um, this is true. Th- you know, and, and it's the most chaotic game I think that they made. Every other game since then is much more precise in its patterns, much more robotic and automated and electric, um, and much more devoted towards chasing ever more like larger quantities of particles uh but on on ps3 their original entry they were like okay what if you were orbiting a planet and lots of rocks were headed towards the planet and you shattered them for power-ups uh but in so doing every time you do it there's more little rocks and now instead of it being in the usual kind of shoot 'em up thing where there's like alien ships firing lasers at you that you have to dodge you have to dodge mostly the chaotic rocks of your own making before, you know, they come back around the sphere that you're flying around. Um, and I really love Super Stardust for that, actually. It's, it's a, a degree of chaos of the player's own fault. Um, and Housemark never quite went back to uh, that kind of punishment for your own video game actions instead it's all reactive stuff and pattern recognition can i you know can i say just what's interesting to me is that you know super mario galaxy and super stardust released the same year oh i did not know. so i don't know what was in the air where a bunch of studios decided that the thing to do was to produce small planets that you would orbit around in some fashion but there was some 
idea, and I have to admit that I love it. Uh, and I know people don't like Geometry Wars 3 for some reason, but that's also another one of those. Uh, or at least they feel like it peaked, I think, in 2 or the first one, depending on who you are. I've never heard anybody say 3 is their favorite, but it might be mine. Uh, but it's, again, that orbiting around the small planet principle will always get me. There's something like a diorama. Mm-hmm. You know, that's occurring there. But I think that you're right also makes it in terms of arcade gameplay and just like shmup or shoot 'em up gameplay very hard to handle in part because that means your horizon, are, you know, is so foreshortened. You know, you don't mm. see like when I'm playing Next Machina, that's the one I've been playing most a week, this week is their I think it was their last major release besides their aborted alpha for I think it was called Storm Divers, the game that they never ended up fully releasing. Uh, They tried to produce a battle royale after having basically very acclaimed games that did not sell well enough for them, two in a row at least, Uh, one of which was Next Machina, uh, which was basically their take on... uh, Robotron. Robotron, thank you. Which uh, Eugene Jarvis also consulted on the game and helped design that game. And so it's got this like lineage going back to 1980s twin stick shooters and but you know in those games you see the bullets coming they're coming from everywhere but you see them all <laughs> um, whereas in super sardas it's like oh there it comes here yeah, it is and it's been spinning in you know whatever the physics model is somewhere around the planet probably around the other side of it um in whatever initial force uh, breaking apart the meteor had, and I managed to get the other eight chunks of it, and then I just, you know, I lost track of the ninth one, and <laughs> here it comes. That's it. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, their games are so tight uh, and have such just, they're so flashy. They're just bright colors. You do feel transported back to like a 1980s or 90s arcade. The only thing missing is like the cigarette smoke streaming through the room or something, um, which, you know, I'm okay with that being gone for, uh, although there's a bit of nostalgia, I suppose. Uh, and, you know, uh, segue, uh, because there's nothing that screams segue like screaming segue. Uh, <laughs> you know, I have been playing... The Nier games. Uh, so I replayed Nier Automata. I'm not going to talk about that because I spent two hours podcasting on that earlier today. <laughs> and that will be in this podcast feed sometime next week. Uh, but I'm playing the first Nier, the remake of it, for the first time. I have watched playthroughs of the original Nier uh, in U.S., uh, also known as Nier uh, Gestalt, uh, or Daddy Near, as some have taken to calling it, uh, because it originally starred a gruff father figure uh, who, in the Japanese version, was actually a young brother. Uh, and they went back to the young brother for the American version uh, of the remake. Uh, and, you know, the reason why Housemark makes me thinking of it is because, of course, in this game, as in Near Automata, uh, you get all the shmup action, both in the sense that sometimes the game literally turns into a shmup uh, where it changes the perspective so that you're on a two-dimensional plane overhead. But sometimes also you're being attacked by enemies that are shooting 
pink glowing balls of various hues uh, that you have to dodge between as you're also doing what essentially amounts to hack and slash gameplay, um, which I love uh, because I love shmups and I love the integration of it into a hack and slash game uh, that's a lot like Bayonetta, for example. But it is also a bad designer. Yeah, same com for Nier Automata, but not for right, either the original right. Nier or even the redesigned. Although uh, Toy Logic clearly is riffing off of Platinum, um, mm-hmm. and so the combat is apparently much tighter than the original. And I think you can even tell just that the camera has been fine-tuned, which is a good thing uh, because Yoko Taro's camera is forced to do a lot of work as he shifts perspective. But I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the game. I will say one of my favorite parts of the game, so this is a fantasy game underneath of which is a science fiction game in a very literal manner, which is to say every sequence that has you going into the Earth also has you basically finding out that your fantasy world is constructed on top of a science fiction world. And then, in fact, the fantasy is really the result, it seems, of technology or of a mixing of technology and magic. And so my favorite example of this, minor spoilers, is that there is a moment where you go into a mansion in the game. Tell me if this sounds like anything. Uh, You go into a mansion, your previously unfixed camera suddenly becomes fixed tightly over your shoulder. Uh, <laughs> underneath the mansion is a laboratory you don't on say. which humans have been experimented. Yeah. Uh, sound like any games? Uh, but, but that, the, you know, this game has these kind of like citational moments on the level of gameplay that I just love so that all of a sudden you're playing Resident Evil uh, when you were supposed to be playing some other batshit crazy uh jrpg essentially um but so that's what i've been playing and i've been watching drakengard uh playthroughs because i can't quite bring myself to try to get it on to i think i, I think i can get it on the ps3 uh perhaps uh but There's i've heard nothing good about the controls uh yeah it, issues with playing uh some of the drakengard games um I think it's three. I, I have friends who, who swear by how good they are without minimizing things like this. Um, I, I think it's the third one. These games all have multiple, multiple endings. You sort of replay them different times and you get different perspectives um, as you go, that kind of thing. And there's a rhythm game transformation in, in Drakengard. Uh, much like Shmup or Resident Evil or other transformations in, in some of these uh, later succeeding games in the Nier series. And at least one of these rhythm games, uh, near, near one of the endings, has invisible inputs. So, uh, kind of the whole principle of rhythm games as, as a subgenre of video games is that you can see things audiovisually and then when the visual has, you know, does something, has a certain pulse or timing or something like that, then you get to, oh, yeah, all right, I, I can hit it right then and I will be on rhythm. It's going to sound good. If I'm off rhythm, it'll sound bad. 
lots of feedback. Rhythm games are, are just so fantastic in the feedback they provide players. And you can get some pretty awful feedback from, I think, Guard 3 because you'll have missed something that you didn't know was there. <laughs> Which, I mean, the, it takes the one element from rhythm games that is, like, arguably the thing that the form most depends on visually and says that is unreliable. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Um, Does that sensibility sound familiar uh, if you've been immersed in Nier lately? Yeah. So I think they ironed out a lot of those kinks, but there are still those moments where I'm like playing a text adventure that's embedded inside of it that involves me trying to wake up people from dreams, but at the end of which is a riddle. And in most cases, they're pretty like... Like, one's the riddle of the Sphinx. But there's one riddle. You go through all these, like, softball riddles, and then, you know, your eyes glaze over a little bit because you're reading these pages of text. And there's not a ton of input. It's a lot of just press the space bar kind of deal. And then you get to one that's, like, requires you to have remembered five or six different things and how they relate to one another from the three pages or four pages of text that you just read. <laughs> Pop quiz. <laughs> just like, yeah. Google, Google, Google. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there are these moments where you get the sense that you're being tested. Um, which, who doesn't love a pop quiz? Who doesn't? Uh, <laughs> who, 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 you know, that, but that's turnabout. That's fair play. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say, so one of the things, and maybe this is a good way of getting into our topic in a more full-fledged manner, I think we've been pretty, you know, sort of digging through it already, but one of the things I love about Nier Automata that I'm sort of getting from Nier, but qu- not quite as much, is that just sense of a post, post-apocalyptic pastoral, right? Like not post-apocalyptic in the sense of like the world has just been ruined and I'm seeing things as ruins, but rather like the world has been so ruined and so much time has been passed since the ruins that it's almost not even ruins anymore. They're just part of the environment. They're just trees have literally grown through them. These gigantic trees in near automata that are the size of very large concrete buildings that they in fact inhabit in a certain way or their trunks cut through these buildings, these former buildings. And uh, a lot of that game is honestly just a very boring back and forth through environments interspersed with really, really interesting moments. And the soundtrack is wonderful. So you don't mind that boredom so much, but it is boredom. But at a certain point, I found myself just really kind of enjoying the boredom, for lack of a better way of putting it, in the same way that sometimes when I'm hiking, Right, like when I'm hiking in the Appalachians or something, especially times I spent in Virginia for some reason, uh, or West Virginia, can't remember which. Uh, there's been kind of like tracks that are not particularly beautiful, that are just a lot of flat land, and you're just kind of getting through it. And there's a kind of meditative air where you just sort of zone out that I kind of love. Uh, and I got that from Nier Automata in a way that I haven't been since I've done a longer hiking trick, which I haven't done since the pandemic has set in. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering if folks have similar experiences of, if not having games replicate outdoors experiences, then maybe having games offer a kind of meditative 
air that they generally associate with some kind of physical traversal, right? With like hiking or something else. Biking, well, I, I tell you what happened. I um, I don't read the instructions before I start playing a game. I don't want to know. I want to find out like only what the game itself is going to tell me is possible in the game. And so the first time I played an Elder Scrolls game, I didn't know about <laughs> fast travel and really didn't know about fast travel well, well into the game. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Was that Morrowind or was it Oblivion? It was Oblivion. It was Oblivion. That's it what was, I was guessing. Yeah. It was it was Oblivion. And um, I had some meditative times in Oblivion <laughs> because also it takes kind of a while to get to a point where you can get a hold of a horse without stealing it, um, depending on how you play the game, which for me was badly because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and <laughs> I didn't know what the controls were. So it took a long time to find enough money to get a horse. <laughs> but the thing is though, that gave me like in part because I didn't know any better, it really gave me an enjoyment of the world. Like I look back on that so fondly. Mm -hmm. I, I remember that as like a pleasantly pivotal gaming experience that I actually really enjoyed. And when I did start fast traveling, uh, it, I think the first time was probably by accident. I was looking at the map, trying to figure out where to go. And it happened to be a place I'd already been before. And I clicked on it. I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you teleported. <laughs> but, what a thing to find out uh, about yourself by accident. You know, what, what if that's just a latent thing and uh, <laughs> none of us read the rules and it turns out you can tell ESP. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a meme once that said you can't teleport in real life because there's always enemies nearby. Um, oh, no. <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, I, I, it actually kind of took something. I mean, of course, like yeah. the game almost becomes unplayable if you don't fast travel at all at some point, mm -hmm. but it did take something out of it. It made the play experience really different. It made my relationship to the temporality of the game really different. I had something similar with EverQuest. It's so ancient now that hmm. similar where um, uh, there were these two plane zones called East and West Karana that were just like endless. <laughs> <laughs> like you know put a rock on numlock and walk away <laughs> except except there were like hill giants so they were like giants so you couldn't just like you know walk away um but right. and they were bandit infested and just um that's also why i was a bard probably because it was one of the few speed enhancing classes <laughs> you could buff yourself druids and bards but um but then you know later on at some point they added way more teleportation portals for wizards and druids and so it just became much easier to bypass those like giant endless zones and so and i do kind of miss that um i think there is something about the like denying, like seeing the game environment, not just as like, um, like Instagram worthy. <laughs> it's not yeah. just about like achieving like wilderness money shots, right? <laughs> right. But it is really funny though, 
how frequent, especially in fantasy games, the Ansel Adams Sierra Club, very mainstream American environmentalist wilderness aesthetic gets invoked. Like, so frequently. And I really enjoyed uh, a little YouTube documentary I watched about Bethesda and their making of Skyrim and how they actually really tried to incorporate different sort of ecosystems and biomes like frozen marshes and tundra and 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 kind of explore and express the variety of cold <laughs> the different ways you could be cold um but at the same time actually playing that game most of what i remember are those very grammable very um i don't know very panoramic moments and i think it would be interesting not that this doesn't happen but it'd be interesting to see specifically an open world game that does something different with with its environmental aesthetics on purpose maybe in some ways the answer is kind of moral wind actually but that's maybe a different underground yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's why i like caves cave games but um Mm. yeah i mean i've heard in final fantasy 14 that i I haven't played it but i know that there are these achievements that you can get like sightseeing achievements Mm. if you go to certain locations at a certain time in a certain season like like some of them will be tied to a specific time and place and so i kind of like celebrate that that seemed really neat but then it's also often like be at the crop you know at the outcropping when the sun like beams down on you (laughs) (laughs) and it's a little bit like wanderer above the sea of fog you know right yikes right right but it's also interesting to think about how that's different when it's happening in virtual space Mm -hmm. and just just because i'm always trying to think about ways that games and environments can interact with each other in non-didactic ways, like not like one-to-one, I am doing this thing in a game and it's what's going to translate into my lived environmental praxis. But at the same time, we do kind of bring those, like I've taken some, some, some pictures on some scenic vistas. I'm not on Instagram, but I've sure taken some pictures (laughs) and, and I actually, I don't have a smartphone either. So I have to carry an SLR camera with me if I want to take pictures. And I do like, (laughs) so (laughs) like you do that and then you do the same thing in a video game. And I wonder what the difference is beyond the obvious. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, it's it's funny, right? Because in a lot of ways, digital technology is like the sort of climax of space-time compression in the way somebody mm. like Marx would talk about it, right? It's like, <laughs> it's the ultimate abolition of space and condensation of time. And so you kind of have to work to reintroduce those things, right? You have to mm. like most games default to compression, you know, compression when it comes to space and time. So you have eight biomes that occupy like a one, you know, one square mile or something. I think another thing that Skyrim did well was precisely to say, actually, we're going to mostly focus on this one biome and there'll be variations of how that biome's expressed, but it's not going to be like the entire sort of 
you know, series of climates from BBC's the world. Planet here. Earth. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, whereas like with playing like near Automata or near, they have like, here's the desert zone, here's the right. forest zone. And I actually enjoy that too, but it does produce a kind of, you know, capsulating effect where these different ecologies or niches become these very consumable things that do lend themselves to, okay, I'll take a photo here, I'll take a screenshot here. Uh, and well, so you and have backdrops for the action and the plot as well, right? Yeah. This happens in the desert zone. You meet these characters there. This happens in the forest zone. This happens when you go back to the forest zone and find a castle in it. Yeah. And as such, they can reproduce environmental prejudices, right? Mm. Like when I hit the swamp level, I know that the swamp is going to be either scary or sad. Ninety <laughs> percent vampires in Red Dead too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When there is, in fact, I mean, this really happened in in America. It took decades, right? Decades mm-hmm. and decades before people started paying attention to swampland as anything other than drainable. right and and so it does really in some ways reproduce the same kinds of environmental the the same kinds of of and i i do think prejudices is the right word in this case in favor of certain environments for no real for reasons that i'll say this are are, have nothing to do with biodiversity that's for sure (laughs) yeah Right. Well, yeah, yeah, they're coded. <laughs> and if you're saying forest, I think I can guarantee that most people are thinking of like a deciduous forest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. in the one northern of hemisphere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've I've done some research into how digital plants get generated, and mm. it's just funny to me because if you look at the Unity Asset Store and stuff like that, like the the number of um, like deciduous plants far outnumbers tropical broadleaf like subtropical mm. plants mm. and That's stuff like that and it's also like if you were really in a rainforest it would be so dense that you really couldn't traverse it you wouldn't be able to navigate or see things so it's just funny right because <laughs> mm-hmm. well, instead we get forests with like nicely evenly spaced trunks right <laughs> mm. what would happen if there were true undergrowth yeah, uh, exactly. in, in our digital Brambles landscapes everywhere <laughs> Yeah. A story I really like, even though um, a, a figure like John Muir has has his problems and has had some really valuable scrutiny turned in his direction over the last couple of years. A story I really like is that when he did his big walk from Indiana to the Gulf of Mexico, he would get stuck <laughs> in the forests in the undergrowth and not be able to progress any farther and would have to actually go find a railroad track Mm. to walk down so that he could do his big environmentalist Uh walk across the country. (laughs) Now we have freeways. So exactly. Thank God. Um... (laughs) But it's, you're right. There is something about traversability that makes games usually i don't know of a game where you i don't know of many games where you get stuck on purpose mm-hmm. getting stuck getting soft locked sucks 
but I don't know if there's games where you get stuck on purpose. <laughs> that would be interesting, unless it's like the spider level. There, There's one that comes to mind, although being stuck isn't quite the right word. Um, and it is no longer the game that this would happen in. The game transformed uh, to make it so that you would have much more neat game loops, much more compressed time. It got much, it got a, a makeover and then another dozen makeovers in Christian's Marxian image. Uh, and it's No Man's Sky. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, when No Man's Sky launched, it was um, piled on with some truly awful uh, and vindictive vitriol from people who felt that it had been over-advertised as a game where you could go anywhere and do anything with tons and tons of players and every planet was going to be a unique yet also um, magically crafted landscape uh, that would facilitate gamers' every desire. And when it turned out to be something different, people were extremely upset uh, and delivered uh, things like death threats to a small 20-person game studio in suburban uh, England, um, really despicably. But that game... Well, you can have uh, room for ships with hyperdrives and boost powers and things that do speed up these differences between them um, and do something like fast travel. And then there's actual fast travel as well. You can build teleporters and things like that. If you don't and you're on foot or you're flying around at low speed, um, you can just go around a planet or a solar system for an extremely long time. The game's scale does not compromise uh, based on, on what was originally thought up. And it's made with procedural generation uh, with rules that don't give nice, perfect spacing between tree trunks. <laughs> um, much, much to people's irritation. That this, that, you know, that, where's the signposting? Where's this? Where's my, my easy traversal? Why is this so empty? Um, why does it take me so long to find the, you know, the oxygen crystals that I need to power my hyperdrive so I can travel super fast? People were so were furious that the game did not enable this to them at launch. But it <laughs> Digital is, wilderness. I mean, it, it, where's it, my rest stop? Where's <laughs> that my intergalactic rest stop? And, and they have them, of course, out in space, these space stations and, and things like that. Right. But there, there, there was a version of that game met with outrage because. <laughs> but it has it its corollaries in real life, yeah. right? Like, how dare there be something beautiful that you haven't pointed to with like a scenic overlook yeah. sign? Right. <laughs> so. And sometimes, some, and, and it's the closest I've found. Even playing the the current version, I had uh, a moment where it, Christian, it was, as you described, it's the closest I felt to going on a hike um, mm. for a really long time. I was, I was on this planet um, and it was described as a paradise planet. And sure enough, everything was pastel neon, like the most like friendly science fiction 
book cover from the 1960s that you can think of. <laughs> totally psychedelic. You said um, Paradise Planet. I immediately went to James T. Kirk <laughs> like, oh, on God. a planet full of alien women. <laughs> I was like, oh no. <laughs> oh, wow. So that's your version of No Man's Sky role play. Um, I'm sure there's a server for that for you. Uh, <laughs> there definitely is. But, but, but this, is, this was that. me empty alone there's nothing going on materially or or in terms of beings or story or anything and um i uh i fell into a crack in the world i didn't expect it um but it turns out that under most of the ground on this planet there's watery caves um and so i i did something that would be absolutely inadvisable in reality and i thought <laughs> let's go for a swim in this underwater cave i don't know if there's a way out of it i don't know if there is any oxygen that i can use to surface in it but i'm in a video game and so it's fine uh if i perished in this underwater cave then that's what happens and i did uh, wind up drowning in this That's underwater cave. And it was fantastic. It's the best thing that's happened to me in No Man's Sky. I, I've played, you know, I've gone, I've talked to alien species and learned languages and done all of the things that gamers would really want to do in No Man's Sky. And none of it, none of it compared to being surprised by I'm hiking along and I fell into a cave. And I didn't expect to fall into a cave. I like and that. It, and it was yeah. so great. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is really, really nice. I this like is that. a this is actually a point on my rambunctious games manifesto that I, I wrote somewhere at some point in some place. <laughs> <laughs> what are rambunctious games, Alenda? You have to oh you have to say more. But one of the one of the things uh was that games game environments should surprise us. Anyway. Yeah. But um it was, uh, it's kind of riffing off of this uh, book, Rambunctious Gardens, which is an Emma Maris. She's a journalist that writes about the environment. And it's basically like, give up the wilderness ideal and the like purity of the environment ideal. And just, you know, uh, acknowledge that the future of the earth is going to be managed or it will have to be mm -hmm. managed, right? So, you know, because you've got like E.O. Wilson on one side saying we should reserve half of the earth for all the non-humans. And that'll cause no problems, right? If we just try to move all the humans to the other half. <laughs> I also what, don't what see that untouched? reproducing certain kinds of inequities. I'm serious. Half <laughs> earth. That's his yeah. book. And then... <laughs> But, so basically, he's Thanos, right? Is that isn't that Thanos? So, I'm pretty sure. So you know, is Thanos an entomologist? But <laughs> in retirement, maybe. Yeah. So this is a much more practical like approach to the future of the planet and our yeah. place in it. So I was like, you know, games are kind of like that. This kind of idea of a managed wilderness or a managed garden. And anyway. That's what I've liked so much about Animal Crossing. I mean, that's what I've enjoyed so much about New Horizons, in part that it replicates that. It reminds me of the community garden here in town, or really, actually, the, the community orchard is kind of the place that I like to hang out. I learn a little bit, uh, uh, like, totally new things that I've never, ever uh, thought of there. 
Um, and what I like about Animal Crossing is that I am automatically good at gardening. Like, <laughs> right I also from- have a thing about this too. I also had ranted about farm games for a while, but <laughs> no, but I like Animal Crossing because I the first time I think I got bit by a, like a scorpion or something, I was also super shocked. And yeah. Then, um, and then, or chased by bees or wasps, sorry. Yeah, yeah. The tarantula knocked me out. Yeah, it was great. And I like, I actually think that the flowers are the most rambunctious, sort of rambunctious mm. part of Animal Crossing New Horizons. They're very my, disobedient. My, yeah, my yeah. son like went crazy because he was like, we have a three-star rating, we need to up this. And so he just like... <laughs> He just like sowed flowers all over the island. And then like after a couple of rainstorms, it was just out of control. Like there was no place (laughs) to plant anything. (laughs) And so like it started, I was like in the salt mines, like every night I had to go dig up like a hundred flowers so that the island wouldn't be covered. (laughs) Wait, wait, Alinda, are you the Nook's representative? I am. Couch. I'm totally the parent See, that comes in at that's night and what just, like, cleans everything up, yes. all the holes. You, <laughs> you end up doing the same uh. labor as a parent that you do. You clean up the physical toys on the ground, and then you play Animal Crossing, and your Nook's representative, and you've got to do the same shit over again. Oh, man. Better than being a repo man. <laughs> you know that's the other person that nook st- sends out from what i understand uh end game sort of material so maybe before we you know close out the show and maybe talk about our non-game recommendations i'd love to hear you talk maybe a little bit about london i know you can't talk in too much detail uh with some of what you're doing now uh with it but about the indicate climate game jam and the igda uh oh, right Right. Climate special interest group and just like what kind of hope or despair, if it's despair, I hope it's not despair, uh, has been coming from like working with those groups, uh, what you've seen that's exciting you, or if you can't talk about specifically what you've seen, then kind of what your role with that is and, you know, I why you actually, think those groups I are think- important. I think that indicate I was I'm a, like a juror right now or not a juror. I'm helping to like rate indicate entries for the main uh, festival, but that I can't talk about. But the um, climate jams going on right now. I was a mentor last year. I'm not this year, but um, still kind of in that community. And they've been doing great stuff with Games for Our Future, which is based in Seattle. And the International Game Developers Association started a climate SIG or special interest group which has been super active and it's totally volunteer driven. And um, if you go to the IGDA site and find the SIG, there's a contact form because um, there's actually, it started really small. It used to just be like a few of us on a monthly call. And now I think, you know, I see lots of people joining. They've actually had to develop an onboarding process. And most of the people there are people who work in the game industry. They're, you know, like uh, the, what the woman that organizes it primarily works at Google Stadia and there are others and we're sort of loosely affiliated with the UN environment program huh. um, because That's they have funny. that playing for the planet initiative. And so there's like this weird kind of ad hoc network of like nonprofits and government sort of pseudo government agencies. And then this like voluntary industry group, but it's really, it's so nice because it's one thing to write about this stuff. And then it's another to actually see this group trying to put some like concrete practices into um, companies. 
So there are, we have these different work streams. So um, one is working on developing a kind of climate 101 guide about the impacts of climate change on the industry, the video game industry. Another one is working on the design patterns database, which is like a huge list of all these games that we consider to be interesting from an environmental standpoint. And we're going to need tons of people to volunteer labor to code this database because right now it's like a list of like 300, 400 plus games. And there's a survey that we can link to maybe um, with the oh, yeah. podcast about like what information should we prioritize with that. And there are others that are working on um, like how do you make design itself more sustainable? Like if you're a game developer, what would you even start to think? Like, what do you think about like, and there's another stream working on putting climate councils in every major game company or at least like a sustainability person. So there's, it's nice. It's nice. It's like people are actually trying to get stuff done from the inside. <laughs> that sounds really great. Tell us, are there any like games that just jump out to you when you think of those design patterns or like maybe some you put on the list or some that like, it's just always stick in your memory. Um, I, I don't know. I think, um, one thing that we've been sort of toying with is like less graphically intensive games, which is not going to be popular with people. <laughs> I actually wonder if that's true though, because actually, I mean, look at some of the major games that are being played and streamed right now. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm thinking, is it Vanheim um, or Valheim? Valheim. Valheim. Thank you. Uh, that essentially, I mean, it's not, super rudimentary but it's essentially like ps2 level mm. or original playstation level graphics in that game and it's one of the most played games i wonder if there's not like a weird place for that i don't know well, among us has pretty low-key graphics and and was at least in uh you know a lot of western spots the most played game for months yeah. yeah, I mean, but I think there are other things that you can do just like, you know, programming, thinking about idle time and use of onboard resources by the game at different in different states. It's like it's more technical than I usually deal with, but mm -hmm. there are people thinking about those. I, it's making me think about the, the possible antithesis between on the one hand, the way that PlayStation is advertising this new Ratchet and Clank game coming out <laughs> next month, I think. <laughs> Or maybe then a month after, which is I think just all about intensive, like constant use of <laughs> processing power uh, and memory. And then they haven't gotten the memo yet. I think. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then on the other they, hand, they're just like, guys, guys, just strip it back. <laughs> I mean, it's like if you look at the playing for the planet alliance, it has like a bunch of smaller companies that you would almost expect, like Elon Media. But then, then it also has these big companies like Microsoft and um, Unity. Like Unity just announced these Unity for Humanity grants that they're mm. they're like offering seed money to mm. developers um, to to start thinking about sustainability. And so I think I think people are starting to see the writing on the wall <laughs> um, a little bit. And it, like a lot of it's probably greenwashing. But I think at least if if some chunk of it is actually legitimate. <laughs> Then, then we can be happy. I think you get that like thing that often happens with these kinds of initiatives where you have these two extremes. You get the smallest studios who have like political commitments to a certain thing, in this case, 
the environment of, and then on the other hand, you get the biggest studios who can just afford to be like, yeah, we'll do that initiative. Yeah. And then the question is, how do you get like the THQs and all those studios in between to yeah. like come on board? You squeeze them. You squeeze them between the political commitment people and the big money people. And hopefully you don't squeeze them out. <laughs> yeah, I think it's still going to be an uphill battle. And I think it's yeah. like linked, it's linked to labor too and other mm. things. So. Uh, we we should do a unionization episode mm-hmm. at some point. Uh, we can we can talk to the, like the two UK studios who have managed to unionize. Um, <laughs> uh, talk to the, some of the co-ops out there as well. Um, yeah, for you know who need, who needs a union when everyone is an equal partner. One of the games that I didn't talk about that I'm replaying right now, and I'll just plug only because we're doing a three-part spoiler cast starting next week on it is Disco Elysium. And they're a co-op studio, uh, as is another studio that we interviewed uh, who made the game Welcome to Elk. Uh, And I just want to plug that because that is available on our podcast stream. Uh, And that's triple topping. They're also a co-op. In fact, everybody's salary in the company is exactly the same. And in fact, everybody has the exact same contract in the studio. Uh, and we actually talk about that in the interview a little bit uh, with the CEO of the company. It's a small company, so she's also one of the graphic design folks. Um, but yeah, just as a small plug, we're going to be doing a three-part uh, spoiler cast of Disco Elysium starting next week with the first couple days of the game uh, with Jamie Woodcock, who wrote a great little book called uh, Marks at the Arcade. Uh <laughs> So, uh, and who also was really oh, I just the got economy. it. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's late. For, uh, it's uh, late for those of us on Eastern time. East Coast anyway. time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's cocktail hour for those of us on West Coast time. <laughs> but maybe we can close out if folks have the energy for it with just our non game recommendations. And uh, if, I don't know, uh, Alenda, do you want to maybe start us off? Um, I haven't watched it yet, but I'm going to because I'm just I just like the stuff. Um, is the BBC's new Attenborough series, the A Perfect Planet? <clears throat> I'm really curious about it, and it, it's uh, nature documentary is kind of my nerdy thing. And uh, I had my six seconds of fame in the Atlantic and an article about um, about how the nature that you see in nature documentaries is like way better and more sexy and um more beautiful than you could ever experience it in real life (laughs) where i'm where i'm quoted as saying that i find like orchestral music and like mood manipulation in nature documentaries really irritating so that's my five seconds of fame (laughs) i feel the same way in in most documentaries and ethnographic films Um, i just want more ambient sound i want more ambient sound but i'm curious because i'm recording come on I feel like it's Attenborough's swan song, you know, he's like 90, 93, 94. So I'm really curious if he's going to be more direct, more forthright. And if it's going to be less glossy, like less like pristine, beautiful nature. That's it. That sounds great. Apologies for the turning around on the Zoom. I had to plug the computer in before our entire Zoom session shuts down due to low battery. <laughs> hey, I, I forgot to plug mine in. in last podcast. That's right. And, That's right. and almost had to had to run away as silently as possible. That's good. <laughs> so, uh, Dawn, recommendation. What have you got for us? 
a a pop electronic album, which is is not necessarily um, completely in my wheelhouse, but it isn't too far from it. Um, Porter Robinson's Nurture came out this past month. Uh, Robinson is um, a pop electronic artist, uh, nominated for a Grammy at one point, has played shows with Skrillex and, and that you know whole gang. Probably very popular with people at South by Southwest. Um, I don't know. But I do like his new album. Um, it has largely uh, pitch-shifted, adjusted vocals that put his voice into a higher register. As with a lot of his other stuff over the last decade, a lot of sounds inspired by um, video game soundtracks and... Uh, anime soundtracks um notably there are a few tracks in it that either sound to me like the introduction to an episode or the you know chill out song that plays at the conclusion of an episode that's usually a very jarring fit depending on on the show you're watching you know you've watched half an hour of giant mechs fighting each other have some acoustic guitar um and uh and the album is kind of constructed like that um, but then with all of these little bits of electronica from the last decade, most of the vocals wind up not just pitch shifted, but glitched. And then there's glitch and then there's repetition. There's a heavy, heavy emphasis on verbal and vocal repetition, um, which permeates inside of these more ambient soundscapes. Uh, and, and there's, you know, the more I listen to it, the more it seems to me that they're are more influences than initially reached the ear with it. Um, and I'm, I'm just finding it to be not just a good pop album, but um, a more complex and interesting pop album than I expected. That sounds great. Uh, the music you heard was me accidentally playing a piece of the album <laughs> when I was just attempting to bookmark it. Uh, yeah, yeah you know, I just first... wanted a little ambience. <laughs> we get a um, I'm the break. Yes, I'm the Roger of this episode when it comes to background noise. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> um, and I apologize to you, Roger, if you're listening to this. For saying what I just Roger's said. not going to uh, listen. You know uh, that Roger, Roger probably didn't even on. listen to the episodes he's on. I wouldn't worry I mean, about why would it too much. If anything, you would listen to episodes you weren't on. But... Yes. <laughs> That's my mode. Uh, so I'll, I'll give a couple recommendations. One, just very quickly... Uh, is I started watching the show. I think there's only two episodes now. Uh, Mayor of East Town, which is what I would call a kind of Pennsylvania noir show, uh, starring Kate Winslet. So just like small town, deindustrialized, like you know, lots of meth addiction town in Pennsylvania. I am located in Pennsylvania, so I feel like I've driven through most of where this uh, takes place and. Uh, I mean, Kate Winslet is amazing in it, and she looks like a normal human being as well, which is also kind of amazing, right? She doesn't look like Kate Winslet, the glowing star. She looks like a person that's had a bit of a rough life and struggled with things. And uh, if you're looking for a good you know, mystery series, I think that might be worth watching. But the thing that I wanted to just bring up really quickly, uh, because I feel like it's relevant for this episode in particular, is I'm reading the new Jeff Vandermeer novel, Hummingbird Salamander. Um, I'm still sort of up in the air about 
it. I, I, mean, I love Vandermeer's work, so I enjoy this. I like it. I've squeezed it in when I don't have the time to read it, and I'm reading it anyway. Uh, and my student papers are just, you know, will sit on the back burner, I suppose. Uh, sorry if any of you listen. Um, <laughs> they don't. But don't they worry. probably don't. Let's hope. <laughs> uh, because I've said some things. Uh, and so it, it's interesting. You know, it's, it's a, it is a novel about what counts as wilderness in a lot of ways and what we do to protect wilderness and what lengths we're willing to go to protect wilderness. And I think the thing that Vandermeer has cornered the market on besides like really weird, beautiful nature, uh, which I think actually, despite the fact that I don't particularly love the Alex Garland film of Annihilation, he did manage to capture, especially in the scene in which Tessa Thompson turns into a flower statuary. Uh, I haven't seen the movie. I've read the Southern Reach trilogy, but yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen Natalie the, the film is worth seeing. They just integrated a lot of romance into it that I feel like was unnecessary because they got Oscar Isaac, and Oscar Isaac is pretty and therefore more romance. Uh, he is. To I mean, be he is. Fair. To be fair, I mean, he is a beautiful <laughs> man, and I completely concede that. I just, but what I love about Jeff Vandermeer novels is he has these woman protagonists that are unlikable according to the conventions for women protagonists and a lot of other works. They're kind of distant. They're aloof. They're not caretakers. They are willing to tell the family structure to go fuck off. Uh, they're disaffected with a lot of like normative gender roles. And he's just doing it you know, pitch perfect in this novel where you have a suburban mom who has a really difficult childhood involving industrial agriculture and works for a security firm and just has kind of had it with things and didn't even realize she had it with things and goes off chasing this mystery that involves a hummingbird and a salamander and taxon, you know, uh, them being not taxonomy, uh, Help me, taxidermy, uh, involving them being stuffed. So it's it's a great novel uh, so far, even if it's not my favorite by him. Annihilation is still hard to beat. Uh, but yeah, that's what I'm reading right now, and it's great. Nate, bring us home. I have a recommendation, and then I have a recommendation. Oh. So, as bad as I am, yeah. <laughs> so... I was driving in my car this week and I was listening to the 2005 album Blessed Black Wings by the heavy metal band High on Fire, which people may know as being the brainchild of Matt Pike, who is the lead guitarist for the doom metal band Sleep, who are infamous for having an album called Dope Smoker that has a guy with like a like a fremen suit from dune but it's like a bong that he's wearing and none of this is really relevant because high on fire are just like i was just like, admiring just the, the hypotactic structure of that yeah. entire thing you may know this from and yet <laughs> the whole point to see the, the whole point of being a metalhead is to be able to do this and then get that reaction where people are like what's wrong with you um the point is it's like really big 
sort of dumb, like there's obviously three guys in this band and that's it. And it's just, it's a guitar and bass and drums and there's riffs and yelling. And I was listening to, and I was thinking just like, I know this album. Like I know every drop. I know all the notes. I know where the drum fills are. I know where the solos are. I can air guitar along in my car. This album just fits like like that one shirt that you've somehow hung on to for, you know, however long. It just, it fits right every time I put it on. Does it fit better or worse than a still seat that's actually a bong? <laughs> it fits just right like a still seat that's actually a bong. And so my recommendation, whether there's a bong involved or not, my recommendation is that you go out and enjoy that album that does that for you. That just <laughs> feels like, ah, when I put this on, I know exactly what's going to happen. I know exactly what it feels like. I know every contour of this, but it just fits right. Go and enjoy that moment for yourself if you haven't done it in a little while. That's my recommendation for this week. Excellent. So a recommendation and a recommendation. I like <laughs> That's it. what you get kind of like at the it. Gamers with Glasses show. <laughs> oh, boy. More than you ever could have wanted um, in the best and worst ways. Uh, thanks, folks. And Alenda, thanks so much for joining us. I hope we get you back soon. It was fun. All nice right. to meet you all. Thank you so nice much. It was you. a blast. Bye. I got to go give, give a bath now. <laughs> That's right. I know how that goes. I was doing Podcast that just is before. Over. <laughs> Podcast is over. It's back time.